thank you, Annette. Uh, um, hello, everybody. Um, just, just on that, um, just to bring it into the room, one of the issues um, is the data, isn't it, uh, for, for doing research on widening participation, particularly from the vocational and work-based routes, because the way that the data is collected uh, in terms of entry qualifications doesn't always signal where people have come from and where they've gained those qualifications. Um, some of you may be familiar with um, some really fantastic research that Sharon Smith and Hugh Joslin have been doing and Jill Jameson at, um, at Greenwich, um, where they've been tracking uh, apprentices um, and trying to work out what kind of portions progress to higher education. And it's really, really interesting work and, and kind of unique. So I urge you to have a look at that if you haven't. But what's really they're finding really difficult is to disaggregate what it is about an individual's qualification set that actually enabled them to access higher education. Because you can read across and think it may, for example, have been their apprenticeship and the qualifications they achieved through the apprenticeship. But actually it might not have been. It might have been that they actually got really, really good GCSEs, you know, which showed that they'd got academic promise or they got an A-level or something. So it's, uh, the data, I think, is an issue, and that's something that I think, you know, collectively, SRHE and, and others, you know, could be kind of banging on to, to government about. Uh, Claire will know lots of stuff about data issues far more than me, of course, particularly on part-time. So I wanted to, to, to talk really about the, um, the work-based route as a, as a, um, as a widening participation um, route uh, and that's because of course um, as, as you all all well know the, the kind of traditional sometimes called royal route to accessing HE is through the academic um, uh, trajectory and particularly with the A-level as, um, as the key qualification for access. So by its if you like uh, by its nature coming from a vocational or work-based route is diversifying the student population, diversifying the kinds of students that come, are coming in and, um, and providing that uh, sort of additional, um, uh, additional level of diversity over and above the academic. So where does this come from in policy terms? Well, I think it, there's been sort of two um, narratives, really. One has been around competitiveness, which goes back, you know, way back, um, you know, to... Uh, <laughs> To, um, the to the early Tory governments of um, Mrs Thatcher and, 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 and Major and so on, um, and has carried on through uh, New Labour and, and, and so on, the competitiveness. So there's a big thing about, about competitiveness and about the, the skills and qualifications of the workforce in UK PLC and the extent to which it compares favourably or unfavourably with, with competitor countries. And... So the narrative goes, in an increasingly knowledge-based economy, then uh, the skills and assets of the people, the human capital, are increasingly the kind of differentiator, uh, and so on. So what can be done from a policy perspective to grow those qualifications, more qualifications, more qualified, um, uh, as a way of, uh, in proxy terms, contributing to that if you look at the profile of qualifications um, uh, in the UK, and I'll concentrate mainly on England, but I don't think it's particularly different in Scotland and, and other countries, 
you have um, what's known as a kind of hourglass uh, shape where we have actually really quite strong numbers of people qualified at level four and above um, and at bachelor degree level um, in comparison terms and we have a lot of people qualified at level two so semi-skilled level but we have quite a gap in between which forms the hourglass shape and of course if you're going to try and grow the pipeline expand the pipeline into higher education then you need kind of ladders that enable people to move from the kind of level one level two through into a secure level three which will enable them then to go on and access um, the higher education levels so there's an issue there but there's also been um, a long-standing narrative I think really now around widening participation which comes from a sort of social justice and equity um, uh, agenda and perspective um, and which you know comes from you know very concerning statistics about the characteristics of the university population which clearly favour um, individuals from better, more advantaged socio-economic backgrounds. Um, and so therefore there's a sort of um, in its own right concern about the fairness of that, particularly when higher education is so heavily funded by the taxpayer. And there have been various initiatives through the years to try and address that, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. And I just picked up a, a couple of those. It's obviously been aim higher, which many of you would be familiar with. Um, and there's been the Lifelong Learning Networks as well, which is where I got to know some people in the room through Lifelong Learning Network um, events. And the kind of mechanism for trying to develop the vocational route as a, as a route into higher education has really been... Um, operationalized, if you like, through the concept of equivalence. So how can we read across from qualifications gained through vocational routes to um, access to higher education? Well, one way is by stipulating that there's some kind of equivalence between them. And the concept of level has been really important in that. So there's a sort of sense in which the, the, the level provides a kind of umbrella under which everything can kind of be compared and contrasted and um, uh, and, and kind of be seen and be talked about in the same breath but it's easier said than done and that's what I'll come on to in practice it becomes actually quite difficult to do that but equivalence is something that politicians and policymakers are really keen on because it, it enables them to talk about um, uh, talk about these different routes and different um, qualifications in ways that makes it sound like <coughs> the, the currency and the um, the um, outcome can be compared. Um, also, um, you'll all be aware of, there's, there's been a, quite a kind of um, arms race really around the rhetoric on uh, access to university and, um, and whether there are other routes and whether there are alternatives to university and of course that's tied up with big debates about the fees and so on and so forth. But certainly, and um, we've heard a bit about it in the election campaign, but we certainly heard a lot in the last um, round of um, party political um, conferences. Um, all, the party, all the parties, the main parties, trying to trumpet apprenticeship as an important route, as a route which can provide not only um, a route into university, higher education, but also can be a, a, what they call an alternative to higher education. So that's a quote from Med Miliband at the conference in September and then a very recent one from David Cameron this was actually um, uh, just before the election um, 
uh, starting bell was, was sounded where they announced what they call in degree apprenticeships. Um, so using apprenticeship really, trying to attach it to higher levels of vocational learning, higher education and say that this has got value, this has got high quality and this is a way of being uh, more inclusive and expansive um, in terms of who can, who can access these uh, good opportunities. Um, this, this, the, the, the push is wider than, um, than the UK. Um, I did a project um, well, two or three years ago now with um, colleagues from uh, Austria, Germany and Denmark um, and uh, where well, we were funded by the EU Leonardo project um, to look at um, uh, routes into um, uh, high level learning and into professional level work if you like um, and, and what initiatives different countries were using to try and achieve that. And we focused particularly on um, what we called hybrid routes and hybrid qualifications where the programmes had sufficient academic content to provide entry-level qualifications to university but also had sufficient vocational and occupational content to qualify without a capital Q individuals for access to skilled uh, occupations um, and we did that in the in the, the kind of within the, um, kind of the backdrop of the EU rhetoric around harmonization uh, European qualification frameworks and so on and so forth and what you see with this sort of policy context and, and policy um, discourse is, is and initiatives, you start to see a sort of interplay between the policy and what actually happens in practice. And I was very interested to see um, the analysis of the access to HE in the last round, where you saw that the effect of the ABB policy being played out, because what was, was, was very interesting was through the equivalence concept, BTECs, which are the main, most successful vocational qualification for accessing HE, were being, uh, were increasingly being used as an alternative to ABB because there was no cap on ABB. So if you look across the UCAS points, you can read across from ABB to, uh, in A-level, to distinction merit-merit in an extended BTEC diploma. So whereas the pool of young people, we're talking about young people here, on, in the main, although of course it's, it's not, um, it's not um, only specific to young people, um, but as, as the pool of young people with top A-level grades doesn't expand, and I think even is, is kind of plateauing, then in order to take up that option of expansion, then the BTEC was used as a, as, a, as a kind of instrument to do that. So you saw that the AB entrance falling by 3%, um, but the BTEC AB equivalent rising by 16%, which is, I thought was, you know, was really the big story to me about, about the, um, the figures from last summer. Some of you may, may know about access qualifications. Um, and of course, one of the big things that um, QAA has been trying to do is to uh, get the equivalence of access qualifications as well. And I think that that's been achieved now. So if you get a, if you complete an access to, to HE diploma, um, depending on, uh, on your kind of grades within that, then you also can be deemed as ABB equivalent. 
So, you know, people find ways of working with these policies in particular ways to, to try and achieve what, um, what, what their, uh, achieve their own goals. So if we're thinking about progression, um, there's a lot of challenges here, aren't there? We're, we're trying to widen the pool and we're trying to um, increase the opportunity for individuals to access higher education. Um, then, um, um, you know, what, what, what are they going to be doing once they've, you know, once they've kind of um, uh, completed their courses? What's available to them? And you see all sorts of interesting things happening internationally here. Um, many of you all know Phil Brown and um, Hugh Lauder's um, book, um, where they, I think they called it um, the Dutch auction, auction or something, didn't they? It was basically about the broken promise of higher education. So, you know, the idea that you know that the bachelor degree is your passport to secure um, good, permanent, well-paid employment, you know, is is really uh, being seriously challenged by the labour market, not only in this country but internationally. So. Just progressing to higher education and getting a bachelor's degree, there's all sorts of questions about now about you know the extent to which that's um, you know that's the, the kind of end point of the um, of the effort. And um, what what we're seeing is you know various um, um, pushes to create routes and programs which try and hedge bets around um, around what um, you might accrue as a result of your experience. There's a concept of reverse transfer where we're seeing um, people with bachelor's degrees um, uh, emerging from those, not going straight into a graduate labour market, but if you like, going back down the ladder to gain vocational qualifications and occupational skills that combined with their um, a good re academic record are providing good, good chances on the labour market. Um, that concept of reverse, reverse transfer has been um, being talked about in Canada, the US, uh, amongst other places. And then in Germany, we've got the concept of doppel qualif I won't even try and say it with a German accent, but double qualifications. Um, Matthias Pilz um, has written about this. Um, and this is the idea where um, uh, individuals are gaining not only the Abitur, which is their equivalent to A-level, um, and the access to, to university qualification, but also um, an apprenticeship so that uh, individuals are qualified both in terms of access to the occupational labour market, which is how it's operated in, the, in, in Germany, but also to, to universities. So individuals are also part of this equation. So individual behaviour is pushing some of this. So individuals and their families are thinking, actually, how can I improve my chances in this really, really competitive labour market situation? How can I differentiate myself? Well, actually, it's quite useful to have both vocational and academic. And our hybrid qualifications project, which was led by Thomas Dysinger um, uh, from Germany, was part of that, was, was looking at hybrid routes. <coughs> and in Austria, for example, they have a, a program which they, they call um, Apprenticeship and A-Level. And what's interesting about that is that it uh, is a program which enables people to gain... Uh, and complete the apprenticeship, which gives access to skilled uh, employment in the relevant occupation. But then on top of that, they wrap around an academic program which extends the length of the traditional apprenticeship program to enable people to gain the qualifications for accessing higher education. 
And one of the things we might want to revisit in the discussion is how does this interact? What are the messages for universities here? You know, what, you know, what are the messages about providing aug aug augmenting, um, uh, augmenting content, augmenting um, uh, skill programmes that, that, that can be integrated with vocational programmes? So apprenticeship is a route to progression. Um, you know, what kind of a platform does it provide for access um, for both young people and older people? And here we have to um, remind ourselves a little bit about the kind of numbers that we're talking about. So how is this um, affecting the pool, if you like, of potential applicants to higher education? So I'm just going to do a little bit of apprenticeship by numbers, and I'll go through these quite quickly. So the government uses the term starts, if you look at the apprenticeship figures. What starts means is registrations. So it's uh, numbers of registrations on government-supported um, apprenticeship programmes. It's not quite the same as individuals, because in theory an individual could start more than one apprenticeship within the year. So, uh, But it's not far out in terms of, of individuals and, um, uh, and registrations. But we haven't got, going back to the data point, there's not actually data that actually categorically says how many people we're talking about. So um, uh, your politicians, of course, the nuances of this completely pass them by. So politicians are start as a person. <laughs> One of the interesting things here, I think, for, for, for our purposes, is to have a look at the size of the 25-plus cohort. So if we think about mature students as a widening participation grouping, another grouping that, that helps to diversify the overall student body, then we can see here that apprenticeship is a, a very popular program with adults over 25. And I've just finished a project for the Nuffield Foundation on adult apprenticeship, which is sort of just, as we speak, almost being, being published, where we've been having a look at the experiences of older apprentices in the government program. So if you looked at the, the, the kind of high point of apprenticeship numbers, 12, 13, um, you see that um, you know, there were nearly a quarter of a million um, older people, <coughs> if you like, <coughs> use older people for 25 plus. Um, but, but, uh, but in university, HE speak, you know, properly mature students they would be, 25 plus. Um, Dropping down to 260 in 2013-14, the numbers for 1924s and the 25 plus fell slightly. They went up slightly for under 90. This is all absolutely and directly a result of funding changes. So the government wanted to have more to put more money into increasing the young people's uh, starting uh, apprenticeship and have been offering um, age-related grants to employers. They've also been cutting funding simultaneously for the older apprenticeship places, um, and you see this as a direct consequence of that. But nonetheless, we've still got you know, quite a pool of, of, of older people um, going through an apprenticeship route who potentially could be candidates for higher education, so our, our widening participation pool. If you look at the level, um, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the terminology, intermediate apprenticeship is a level two program, advanced apprenticeship is a level three program, and then what they call higher apprenticeship is level four plus. 
if we're thinking about the most ready source of individuals for accessing HE, then clearly we'd be looking at the Level 3 programme, the Advanced Apprenticeship programme. And what you can see here is that it's the smaller of the two main programmes. The Level 2 programme is the biggest. And what we don't have is very clear mechanisms for people moving from Level 2 to Level 3 and Level 3 to Level 4. The way the programme is organised in this rather fractured way, with breaks between programmes, means the scope for people to get stuck, essentially. And, of course, the bulk of people could be being stuck at Level 2. So there's an issue about progression from Level 2 to Level 3 in our kind of pipeline argument. But if we just look at the Level 3, who, you know, in theory could be um, completing a, a Level 3 programme and therefore be qualified to access HE, those are the, the kind of numbers. So it's about 50,000 older people um, starting at a Level 3 in 13, 14 much smaller on the higher apprenticeships, uh, as you'll see. And it's about a third of all starts for starting a, a Level 3 programme. But nonetheless, this is quite a sizeable population of, uh, of, of people who could be contributing to a widening participation agenda. Just a quick one on gender. So essentially, the rule of thumb is the older the apprentices, the more likely they are to be female. So again, going back to our kind of mature student, that 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 course is the same with the mature student population. And that's still true, isn't it? That mature students are more likely to be female than male? Yeah. Um, and of course part-time are more likely to be female. <laughs> so there's a big gender cross-cutting issue here. Claire may want to maybe talk a bit more about that. Um, so the younger the apprentices, the more likely they are to be, to be male, and the older, the more likely they are to be female. If you look at the um, distribution across occupations, it's still very, very gender sort of gendered, um, and those occupations which traditionally have been male and those that have traditionally have been female are still heavily dominated um, by those genders um, uh, in, in the apprenticeship in the apprenticeship program as well as in the labour market more widely. Although there are in this most recent project that we've done um, for Nuffield, there's a little bit more. Um, there's a little bit more elasticity around the older ages and gender stereotyping. So the older apprentices, who are either male or female, are more likely to be non-traditional, doing apprenticeships in non-traditional sectors for that gender than the younger ones. If you look at the younger ones, it's very traditional. So girls doing hairdressing, boys doing engineering, boys doing construction, girls doing early years. But, but it slightly softens as you look at the, the distribution of the older. The older. This is just, just to have a look at the frameworks um, uh, and how they pan out. So as you can see, the, the kind of service sectors um, are the biggest ones at the top. Um, health and social care is um, by far the biggest now. Um, uh, and you have to go right down to eighth position to find engineering a ninth to find construction, and then this weird thing called industrial applications, which is, a, which is another po completely policy-driven one. What that is, is um, a manufacturing environments where um, uh, shop floor production workers have their existing skills converted into level two qualifications. That's what that is. It's, it's pretty much 
or level two, and really all male. Um, yeah, so that's we can we can talk about that, but that's the kind of profile that we've got at the moment of um, of sectors, um, which shows that the apprenticeship program is permeating across the economy, which is obviously very different to a few decades ago when it was very um, focused on the crafts and um, and manufacturing and so on, and some of the traditional um, female crafts such as uh, craft sectors such as hairdressing, and now it's reflecting. Um, uh, the economy more broadly in, in terms of it turning into a more service-led economy. If you look at the management one, which I think is, is quite interesting, um, to think about an apprenticeship in management and what that might mean, um, uh, it's quite interesting to think about that in terms of level. You know, Does it make sense to have a management apprenticeship at level two, for example, if it's not linked into an integrated journey through to level four. Well, again, I think you see some perverse sort of the kind of distortions of policy and funding kind of driving some of this, uh, these kinds of things. Okay, so this just, um, I think the last one on the, on the numbers. Um, just looking at the top five sectors in terms of advanced apprenticeship, the level three and higher apprenticeship, the level four plus, um, and there's a little bit of change. So if we're thinking about our pool for widening participation from this route, and we're thinking about the level three, then these are the kind of sectors which are delivering the most numbers. Health and social care, um, uh, CCLD is, is uh, children's care, learning and development business administration, engineering and management. So engineering sort of comes up the table when you look at level three, which makes sense because engineering is you know, clearly a skilled occupation, has long traditions of very high quality training and good quality qualifications and uh, clearly vocationally can link into higher level, um, high level learning and um, career ladders that take you through to professional status. The higher apprenticeship, I was quite surprised when I looked at these actually for today's presentation because I thought that accountancy was, was right out on top in terms of the higher apprenticeship. Um, and accountancy is very interesting because it's an occupation or a profession that's, that's maintained a strong work-based route all the way through the, the policy changes of the last couple of decades, whereas, you know, as we know, law and things like that, have, um, you know, nursing and things, they've become kind of graduate um, uh, entry, whereas accountancy has maintained that, so it's got a, a, quite a strong work-based pipeline going through, and I thought that nearly all the higher apprenticeships were, were accountancy, but um, actually it only comes third, and the care, that, that one, care, leadership and management, comes top by, by some way, and of course that's policy-driven as well, because there's a requirement, I think, now for nurseries to have a manager who's level four or above qualified. I think that's statutory now. So you sort of see the, you know, the kind of interface with with, with different policies playing through. But clearly, most um, people who are running nurseries, you know, haven't got the, the time to kind of go off into a full time degree. So a work based route is, you know, makes perfect sense for them. So we've got a lot of complexity around this, um, and particularly if we're thinking about. The vocational route or the work-based route as, a, as a, a really secure route into higher education. 
and you have to be a bit of an anorak to, to really get under the skin of this. But one, you know, if you if you if you if you do take the, the trouble to do that, then you just see this most enormous array of differences between the kinds of qualifications that people are um, following and achieving through um, the vocational route and particularly through apprenticeship, which sounds all very neat and tidy when you call it level three. But when you say when you peel back the layers, you see enormous difference. You see differences in the, the type of the qualification, the extent to which it's very narrowly occupationally focused, or is a bit more, a bit broader, more general vocational education. Um, in the structure, the extent to which there's any writing involved in achieving the qualification, the assessment, and so on and so forth. So there's very little standardisation about what counts as a level three. And there's quite a lot of um, wriggle room, I suppose, which I don't think is helpful for individuals and for people trying to guide individuals in terms of their choices. Um, there's a the big difference in terms of the intensity and the duration. So you can do a short cycle level three vocational qualification, which you know might only be worth. 15 credits on the qualifications and credit framework, for example, or you can do, you know, something which my colleague Lorna Irwin and I call full fat vocational qualifications, which actually are substantial and, and can be read across in some ways to the, the same as the same kind of level of commitment that you require to get an A level. And of course, the articulation is the key thing. What what do these qualifications articulate with? And it's not always clear how they articulate within the occupational structure, development structure, let alone in terms of their articulation with the education system or the higher education system. Um, and one of the key differences is the extent to which they might be considered suitable for accessing foundation degree or sub-bachelor level or bachelor. And I think in the statistics and in the experience of people achieving these kinds of uh, vocational level threes, we do see quite a difference where they might be sold as you know, a level three qualification that gives access to higher education, but in practice, where they are considered, it's tended to be for sub-bachelor because of, of um, wariness and, um, and uh, a concern about the extent to which that platform is really there for accessing directly onto a bachelor degree. And of course, foundation degrees often were um, allied with university widening participation kinds of policies and associated with additional resources around study skills and things like that. So actually, there was quite a lot of interesting practice around the foundation degree as a widening participation mechanism, which I think has been undermined by you know, the changes in funding for foundation degrees. So the, the kind of potential for getting stuck with one of these, you know, skimmed milk level three qualifications now, I think is greater than it was a few years ago because it's very difficult to go to jump from those to a bachelor degree place. So that's a, a real issue, I think, for, for, for not only for universities, but for, um, for providers, uh, vocational providers to be thinking about. Um, in kind of explicit terms, we've got very few level threes in the UCAS tariff, vocational level threes, um, and that makes a big difference to their uh, currency. 
many have got very low currency on the qualifications credit framework, which I know is kind of withering on the vine, but, but nonetheless has been, been used as a, a kind of barometer of, of, um, of quality. Um, and they have very variable, what we might call use and exchange value. So the extent to which they really qualify somebody to do a, uh, occupational tasks and uh, are an indicator of competence in doing tasks, proven ability, that might be considered to be use value versus exchange value, which would be about what kind of currency do these have for exchanging for something else, you know, a higher level program. So lots and lots of diversity and difference, which makes our lives much more complicated. And then there's an issue about labour market types um, as well, which complicates it further. So different occupations, different areas in the, in the economy have different recruitment practices and traditions which allies to the kind of labour market that they are characterised by. Um, you know, are, is this a labour market, for example, in um, uh, engineering, and we'll come on to an example in a minute, where um, uh, uh, the kind of qualification which um, is going to enable you to get professional membership, one of the professional organisations, um, uh, is quite clear and it's quite clear that it will be recognised across the country. It's not going to be different in Plymouth than it is in Liverpool, for example. Many of these other qualifications don't have that kind of applicability or portability across, across labour markets. So there's a big issue about portability here, um, which is affected by the labour market type. And I'll say a bit more, bit more about that in a minute. Just of time. Um, and there's a link to, to education and training. So if you've got what we might call an internal labour market in an organisation, um, it's going to be very different to this kind of external portability kind of labour market. So put simply, if, um, if you're wanting to access occupation within the kind of labour market which is characterised by internal labour market facilities, then the qualification that you get at the outset um, and which you, you sort of enable to get in, if you like, um, is then going to be augmented by your experience and, and performance and ability within the firm and um, you'll either get on or not get on depending on how you kind of perform. <coughs> and the firm is the kind of key regulator in that. If you've got a, if you're coming in with a qualification which is recognised across your occupation, then that kind of firm effect is not quite so strong. Um, so your career progression is not going to be limited by that particular firm because you can always move somewhere else and trade in your experience. So what might you need in order to create uh, an apprenticeship or work-based route that would give you what, what we might call an expansive platform for progression or for access. So if we're thinking about widening participation, what is it that our non-traditional, uh, uh, potential non-traditional entrants might need in order to facilitate their access to higher education? Well, they need to be in a kind of occupational area where the scope for those roles to grow to high levels. So if you're kind of caught in a a kind of vocational area where the job roles are very narrow, where the skills are quite routine, um, then the, 
potential to expand and to move on up is not going to be there. So what's the nature of the occupation and what kind of access, what kind of expansiveness does it, um, uh, does it include? What's the sort of routes up towards the, what's the end point that you could be aiming for? You know, is it a high level? Is it a profession? Is it an allied profession? You know, what, what, what is it? Is it clear? What, you know, can you recognise it? How transparent is it? How transparent is the ladder? And one way of, of looking at it is, is thinking about are the professional associations um, you know, with clear guidelines about what the different levels are within the occupation, like, for example, in accountancy. Does the training route and the qualifications associated with that you know, provide both academic and occupational um, uh, content and, um, uh, and uh, skills? Is a sufficient of the sort of general educational skill development within the program, within the, within the qualification, within the assessment that's going to um, signal to higher education providers that you're going to be well equipped to benefit from the program. So if you have a program which you know which you can see has got sufficient academic and sufficient vocational content um, and intensity um, and, and duration of substance if you like then you might well have a good platform for progression and that's um, embedded within an occupation where there are higher level, higher skilled jobs. So, how long have I got back? Not, not that long. We need to, I need to go a, bit, a little bit quicker. Um, I'm just going to just quickly look at aeronautical engineering um, and then I'm going to quickly look at, at healthcare support as two examples. <coughs> if you look at aeronautical engineering apprenticeships, they have sufficient currency to mean that access to higher education can be relatively straightforward. That's not to say that it would be completely straightforward because admissions tutors will look at their maths, and the, the content of maths. So there may be question marks about what modules you're taking, things like that, within, uh, within the, the vocational qualification. Um, now various, there are various options within the route. If you're um, part of an organisation which is thinking about progression and thinking about your career development, then the chances are that they'll give you access to completing the BTEC Level 3 diploma. And of course that generates UCAS points equivalent to 2A levels. So you can graduate from this programme with decent UCAS points, as well as all the other things, of course, that you've learned along the way, which, uh, which would be very important. So you've got exchange value attached to this uh, qualification. I'll just skip over the next three and just talk about healthcare support. So healthcare support is also um, a level three apprenticeship. Um, and this is one example. You can do a diploma in maternity um, and uh, paediatric support. You can get an MVQ3. Um, you can get um, uh, other sort of short cycle level three qualifications, vocational qualifications as part of that work-based program. But you don't get any UCAS points at all through that. So there's our aeronautical engineer <coughs> over here who's completed their level three. We've got you know, a bag full of UCAS points, recognised qualification. Here's our healthcare support worker over here who's completed a level three 
who's got nothing in their kit bag. However, they may have had a very, a very good training uh, in, in healthcare support um, through their employer um, and, um, and be very well qualified to do the job well, but they won't have the qualification to, an, to, to access a nursing degree, for example. So they've got a much more restrictive platform for progression. And that's because of the labour market, not least, because in the healthcare support it's an unstandard, it's unstandardised <coughs> occupation, um, it's not registered, um, there's no clear articulation to the professional ladder to becoming a nurse, for example, or an OT, or a paramedic, or, 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 or any of those other allied healthcare professions. The local employer will determine the content of the training, which of the, the bag of qualifications it's going to, it's going to um, kind of dip into. Um, and um, as I say, might might be a good training. It might make you might might help you to become a very effective healthcare support worker in a particular hospital in a particular place. But it's not going to provide you with a, an expansive or a secure platform for progression. So it might have high use value, but it will inevitably have low exchange value. So just to conclude, a lot of issues that emerge from this. Um, that I think mean that in terms of conceptualising widening participation from the vocational route, we do need to take a lot of things into consideration. We need to think about labour markets and the extent to which they're going to facilitate or inhibit the progression opportunity. We need to think about practices in the contemporary labour market. You know, how do people get in or get on, as David Marsden um, calls it, um, and an increasingly competitive environment where the concept of tournament has been used to try and um, capture what it's like to get into certain kinds of uh, occupational areas, like in creative and cultural industries, for example, uh, where we've got the issue of uh, unpaid internships really being uh, the kind of key way that people get in. Um, then, then it's increasingly difficult to hang your hat on a particular route and know that that's going to deliver the outcome which your investment a few years ago would be more likely to have generated. So what, el what else do you need to do in order to sort of secure your future as well as just getting the qualifications? If we're talking about the labour market and about work-based routes, then we're always going to have this competing tension between what the individual wants to achieve and perhaps what the employer wants in their particular organisation to achieve their business goals. And what's the role of the provider here? Well, I think we've got a sort of system where effectively we've got providers who are separated from the processes of certification. So we have separate awarding bodies in the vocational area, just as we have in the academic area. And that's not very helpful. So providers are kind of, it's washed back from the qualification to what the providers provide and what they're funded to provide. There's not a very um, symbiotic and constructive uh, relationship between providers, curriculum developers, and uh, qualification awarding bodies, which I don't think is helpful. So there are lots of challenges for widening participation, I think, from this route. Not to say that we shouldn't be keep on um, persevering with it, um, uh, and I feel more strongly than ever that we should. 
but there are various issues. The quality issue is really paramount here. If this route is to deliver widening participation, then we really can attend to quality. We need to attend to quality issues. Um, and those programmes uh, increasingly need to be able to deliver people that can access bachelor degrees and not sub-bachelor because that whole area has become so kind of um, uh, murky again with funding changes and things. Um, and then age is an issue. Whilst we've got you know good numbers of older people on apprenticeship programmes, the way the funding is working is putting pressure on uh, the access to apprenticeships for older people. So it's declining as a route for older people, which, uh, uh, as, as, uh, um, as we've just said right at the beginning, is clearly delivering some diversity into the system um, and also um, are much more likely to take up part-time positions as well. So it's got great potential to enhance the student pool, but also great challenges to achieving that.